For those of you who don't know, my name is Joe Crispin. And I don't know how long I've been a member. I should probably know by this time of reading the word, but I'm thankful to be here. Page 979 in your pew Bibles. Larry will be specifically focused on verse 17. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I marvel that we're here. We have your word, and we're gathered to hear it. It is easy to underestimate that reality. And it is easy to underestimate what you've called us to and the power that you've given us to apply it, to believe it, and to live it. Grant Larry power this morning, clarity. And grant us the faith to receive it and apply it as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, Lindsay. I mess up all of Lindsay's stuff. I've got to get it far away here. Got to be able to see. Yeah, that's going to be a little. Sorry, Lindsay. And as I said last week, I'll try to remember to put it back, and I won't remember, probably. Uh, imagine imagine you're, you're stepping into a, a church building, a gathering like this, for the first time. Uh, for some of you, you don't have to imagine. That's actually, for some of you, your reality today. Uh, or it has been over the past few weeks. You're stepping into this church building for the very first time. Uh, for others of you, it, it may happen to you as you go and visit other churches when you're on vacation or something like that. Or perhaps the time will come when uh, the Lord moves you on from this congregation and you're looking for another congregation to call your own. And so imagine you're stepping into a church service for the very first time. Uh, maybe you come in through some type of foyer and you're greeted and uh, perhaps someone hands you a, a, a paper pamphlet or bulletin with a schedule of what's going on. You enter into that main meeting room and you find a seat for yourself towards the back. And uh, you're a little early, so you, you just take a minute or two and you're, you're sort of looking around and you're processing what's happening around you. Uh, maybe you observe the, the dress of the other people that are coming in, and you take note of whether you're underdressed or overdressed. Uh, you, you note the age of the people who are coming in, and whether they are of relative age as you are. Maybe you observe the decor, uh, or the, the setup of the platform, or the staging area. 
perhaps there's a, a band warming up, or maybe there's music playing over the, the speaker system. Uh, if you got one of those bulletins, you begin to thumb through it and, and, and note maybe the design of it, the, the logo of the church, the uh, announcements, the list of events and activities that are happening. Throughout those few minutes, I think probably impressions are forming in your mind about this place and about the kind of people who gather in this place. Maybe you start wondering, is it, is it comfortable? Uh, are the people uh, around you warm and welcoming? Have you been greeted by others or have people sort of noticed that you're there and they've ignored you? You begin to think perhaps, is this a church I could see myself coming back to. And as you dwell in this hypothetical scenario, okay, again, for some of you, an actual real-life scenario, I want to ask you a question. What's most important to you as you consider whether you're going to come back to this church? I don't mean literally this church. I just mean, you know, in the, in the scenario. Or maybe this church. What is it that you most want? What is it that shapes your assessment of whether this is a good church, a healthy church, a a church maybe that you could see yourself as a part of? I don't want to just ask you that question. I actually want to propose an answer to you. Maybe it's more of a plea, actually, than a proposal. As you, as you sit there wondering whether you would return again to a church, the most important thing for you to consider is how seriously said church treats God's word. If, if what we have been seeing so far this morning in the scriptures what we've been singing about, what we've been praying about this morning, if it's true, then I would suggest to you that the main thing we should be looking for when we gather with a church is the place, is the prominence of God's word in that gathered church. Now, there are other things worth noting. We should certainly pay attention to uh, whether there's genuine evidence of belief in that word, right? Is this a building full of theologically astute cold fish? Do the members of the church care for one another? Do they care for the outsider? Do their lives have integrity? Those are very important questions, questions that surely you won't be able to make a conclusion about in your one time visiting this uh, particular church. But still, I would contend that as you sit there in that weekly gathering, what your ears should be itching for is the word of God, because it's the word of God that will slay that mortal enemy that we've been considering in our series of sermons In Ephesians 6, it's the word of God that will slay him and that will defeat his malicious purposes in our lives, uh, in our churches. And as we engage in that outward looking mission that we have to both our neighborhoods and all the nations of the earth. Uh, We've been thinking together about this reality often called spiritual warfare. And maybe it's been surprising to you. It has surprised me that in a series on spiritual warfare, it's actually become a series of messages on the gospel. But that's very clearly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this paragraph that we just heard Joe uh, read to us. He's piling up images and metaphors and recounting those spiritual graces that picture all the good that God's people have because of Jesus. And today we come to consider another vital part of that good we have in Christ, another vital piece of the weaponry, the armor, 
that he has given to us that we might be strengthened in the Lord and so withstand the evil one's schemes. This is, in fact, as it's often been noted, this uh, piece of armor that we're looking at this morning is, is the one offensive weapon that we are given for our battles. Verse 17, again, take the helmet of salvation. We talked about that last Sunday. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's what we want to be thinking about this morning. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And from that passage, I I want to uh, observe with you two things. First, I want us to note, I actually have an outline for you this morning. And I even made it alliterated because I was just feeling in that mood this week. Let's observe the power of God's word. And then let's observe the church's practice of God's word. The power of God's word and the church's practice of God's word. And as we do that, I I do pray, I have been praying for you, that your confidence in and your reliance upon God's word would be strengthened, even for the spiritual battles that you will face this coming week. So first, the, the word of God is powerful. I think we can infer that much just from the imagery of a sword being used to depict the word, right? In in, in previous weeks in this series of messages, we have considered uh, the malice and the deceptiveness of this enemy in order that we would do battle with him. We need more, though, than just defensive armor, right? We've been talking about a belt and a breastplate and a helmet and a shield. And and, and that's good. We need that because the enemy is coming at us. But if we're going to strike down this enemy of ours, we need more than a breastplate or a helmet. right? We don't just need protective armor, but we need a weapon. And... Uh, as we've been singing, as we've been reminded of on a number of occasions in this series, all that we have needed, God's hand hath provided for us because he has given us a weapon. He has given us the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the whole, the whole Bible, the whole word of God testifies to the almighty power of God's word. Right, that's, it's how the Bible begins, right? In the beginning, there was God, and God created the heavens and the earth, and how did he do that? Well, we're told so many times in Genesis chapter 1, aren't we? He spoke, right? He used his word to speak, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's a powerful word. God says, be, and something is. That's what we declared in the, in the scriptural call to worship this morning, right? From Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Not only does his word create all things in the beginning, but we know the Bible tells us that his word continues to uphold and sustain all things, even at this very moment. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a powerful word. I would just consider for, for a moment what actually happened when Jesus said to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. Particles of, of nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen listened to the word of Jesus. Electrons and protons obeyed him. Oh, the, the word of God is powerful. But the the power of God's word may be seen even more thoroughly 
And I, I, I hesitate to go here because in broaching this subject, it's like I'm trying to fit the, the ocean into a teacup. Okay, but I'm going to go there. The power of God's word, he's seen in creation and his upholding things, but the power of, of his word is shown in how the Lord establishes and breaks relationships by his word. Right? God created in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created Adam and Eve, and he created them to image forth his own rule over creation, and that meant submitting to God's word. And so God spoke to Adam and Eve to reveal to them the terms and the aims of their relationship with him. Right? We see that in Genesis 1 and we see that in Genesis 2. God speaks to the man and the woman and he tells them what they're for. That's part of our, our creatureliness is that we don't even know what we exist for if left to ourselves. We need the maker, we need the creator to tell us what we're for. And he does that. He speaks words. But we know that Adam and Eve, they did not listen to God's words. And so he pronounced, he spoke words of judgment upon them, a curse upon them and upon the entirety of creation. Because rather than listened, rather than listening to God's word, both Adam and Eve listened to someone else's word. Right? Eve listened to the words of the serpent. And then Adam listened to the words of Eve. And all the chaos and the corruption and the devastation that we see in the world around us day after day after day is a consequence for the atrocity of human beings looking the other way. Turning a deaf ear to the words of God. It, like when I was, I, I don't know that this phrase is still used, um, but when I was younger, people would say sometimes, talk to the hand. Do you, do, is that still, do, do people use, do people talk like that today? Not really. That's like, no, Alicia's like, no, that's so 90s. Okay. Well, okay. So it is. Um, but you, like talk to the hand and the, uh, the longer version was that talk to the hand because the ears ain't listening. I'm just saying that was a thing that people did say that. It's a sarcastic way of saying basically that one does not want to hear what another person is speaking. We understand how disrespectful. I mean, some, some people just say that as a joke, but like if somebody actually said that to you, talk to the hand. Like that's, that's, that's really offensive. Can you imagine how disrespectful? And how offensive that would be. How reprehensible it would be that human beings who were made by God to image forth God might say to God who made everything by his good and powerful word. That, that we might say to him, talk to the hand. That's essentially what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And that's what all of us have done. In the image of Adam and Eve, we have sinned against God. We have essentially plugged our ears as if we did not want to hear, as if we did not want to care about what God has to say. And therefore, he speaks a word of judgment against us. The, the, the word spoken in the beginning of Proverbs as wisdom personified speaks is really a word of indictment on the whole human race. Wisdom personified says, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. We have all disregarded and ignored and been inattentive and thought that our own ideas were more weighty, 
were more wise than God's own words. And so we deserve the same sentence of condemnation and judgment that God declared that he spoke against our first parents. We, we deserve to never hear a pleasant word spoken to us from the mouth of God. That is what we deserve. We deserve judgment on top of judgment and wrath upon wrath because we have refused to listen to the good word of God. And his word says that when he comes to bring judgment, he will use the sword of his mouth to bring that judgment. The last uh, book of the Bible in Revelation 19, when we see the coming of Jesus breaking through the heavens, we're told about him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And we're told that those who had refused his word were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's that living and active word. I know it's a sermon on the sword of the spirit. Someone's going to get on me if I don't mention Hebrews 4, at least Hebrews 4.12. The, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Piercing to the division of soul and the spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Really that word, and I don't have time to get into this, but there's a sermon online from Hebrews chapter 4 if you want to think more about it. But really that's, that word is actually talking in the context as about a word of judgment. How the word will judge those who do not hear and receive with faith God's word of salvation. Commenting on that that famous passage in Hebrews 4, a commentator by the name of John Brown wrote, The threatening of God against unbelievers is a threatening which will assuredly be executed. And when executed, an intensity of suffering, a completeness and extent of destruction and misery will be the result. Of which the torturing and deathful energy of a two-edged sword wielded by the most powerful arm affords only a very distant and imperfect figurative representation. That's the word that we all are due this morning, beloved. But we know, praise the Lord, we know that for all those who had have ears to hear it, That's not God's final word on humanity. Because we know, and we've come to it so many times, but I don't know that you can go to Ephesians 2 verse 4 too often, can you? We know what's true of God, that him being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And he has done that by his word. We're going to sing after this sermon. I was blinded by my sin. Had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit, the sword of the spirit. Then your spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son. Gave me Endless hope and peace. Oh, that's the good news. That's the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation that Paul has been celebrating in this letter to the Ephesians. That Jesus, who could have come the first time and used that sword of judgment protruding from his mouth to strike down each and every one of us for our callous disregard of his word, that Jesus actually came and he took judgment in our place. He was condemned in our place to set his captive people free from the devil's tyranny and to sanctify for himself a holy and blameless people. Paul told us in in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. But he did it by his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. If you are here with us this morning, 
and you don't maybe consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we are very glad that you're here with us. We would love for you to keep coming, thinking about these things, asking questions. I often do say, I'll be at the back. I would love to talk with you, and I won't yell at you the way I do when I'm up here. Would love to talk with you. But we, we believe that if you are not following Jesus and you're here among us, that the Lord has brought you here to hear this message. I'm not sure what you think is important in evaluating what's happening in this gathering. But as a sinner who deserves hell and can only be saved by God's grace, you have an interest in hearing what God's word speaks against you. The least valuable thing in the world is a church that echoes what you already think about yourself. That would not be helpful to you. But we believe that God has spoken, that he has spoken authoritatively, he has spoken definitively, and he has shown, he has spoken that he is good and holy and righteous. And that he made you and he made everything to reflect his own all-satisfying glory. But we have made ourselves corrupt and guilty by our disregard of him and are thus subject to his wrath and indignation. But God is so filled with love that he sent his beloved son to reintroduce his life-giving rule in the lives of a new people by living and dying for their sake, bearing the penalty for their sin and conquering death through his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of a new creation to show that he has power to save all who would repent, all who would lay down their rebellion and put their trust in him and swear allegiance to him and trust in his self-sacrificing love and commit to following him in the strength that he supplies. That is God's good word to every hell-deserving sinner. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, we invite you, we urge you to do that today. Again, talk to me, talk to someone else around you about how you might repent and believe in this good news and be transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Brothers and sisters, I, I know the overwhelming majority of you here, you have come to believe in that message. And if you have, I just want to remind you that it's because of the powerful working of God. It's because God has fulfilled the word of promise spoken through Ezekiel. Right, that Rob read to us earlier, raising from the dead an obstinate and rebellious people, a dead people. What a, what a breathtaking picture of our salvation is that passage in Ezekiel chapter 3. Here's these dead corpses. And God says, can these bones live? Everything in us would say, no, they're dead. It's a corpse. But God's word is powerful. And when he speaks the word of God and the spirit of God comes in, we cannot do anything without the spirit. That's why he calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right. It's, it's, it's written right here on my on my binder. So I see it every week. Uh, it is the spirit who gives life. And my dear daughter, Felicity, reminded me again of it this morning. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. God's word. And God, if you have come to believe in Jesus, it's because he opened up his word to you and he made you alive. We've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Amen. Oh, we sing about it in another. I, we, there's every, every sermon I've prepared in this series, especially I got like six or eight more songs that come to my mind more than we have time to think for. But I, I, I was thinking about uh, over oh, a thousand tongues to sing when, he, when, when, when the song says he speaks and listening to his voice, new life, the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble, poor believe. As if you've been delivered from the guilt and the punishment of your sin, it's because God gave you life by his word. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness in the very beginning of, of creation, shone in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is all by the power of his word working in conjunction with the life-giving breath of God's spirit. 
And by that same powerful word, we stand firm against the devil and we strike down his schemes to tempt us and to harass us and to discourage us and to intimidate us. And that's the example that Jesus himself gave, right? And here's another passage that you just have to go to if you're going to preach on how the word of God is the sword of the spirit when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, right? You went there in the Sunday school class, didn't you, Matt? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, And the devil comes at him. What does Jesus do on three distinct occasions? He quotes scripture to the devil. And I love it. I love the way it's worded, particularly in Matthew's gospel. The final one of those temptations when the devil tempts him, it says, Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. So you want to, you want to send the devil away. You need the word of God. Just as our initial salvation Our forgiveness of sin and our being adopted into God's family, it came by the power of God's word. So our ongoing renewal and our progressive growth into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that happens through the power of God's word. Right? Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's why John writes in 1 John 2, this is like my my verse of the year. I don't think I've ever had a verse of the year. But this is just a verse I keep coming back to all throughout the last several months, at least. First John two fourteen. right? You are strong. You're strong, saints. You have overcome the evil one. Do you know what's sandwiched in between those two? You're strong. You've overcome the evil one. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. You are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, do you see why I proposed earlier that the most important thing to look and listen for in evaluating a church is the prominence of God's word in that church? Ambiance, decor, musical style, even the friendliness of the people, which is an important thing. I don't mean to say that's a bad thing. Well, we should be friendly. (laughs) But all those things are superficial compared to the church's regard for and their attitude towards God's word. God's word enlivens and energizes all the other activities of the church. And it's a word that never fails. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word never fails. That's why we got to put that at the center of everything. What a mighty sword we have been given. To stand firm against the devil's accusations and his allurements. If, if we would work for renewed life and health and holiness in our churches. In other way, another way of saying that would be if we want to wage war against the devil. Because those are the kinds of things that the devil is trying to steal, kill and destroy. Right? Our renewed life in Christ and our health and our holiness and our love. If we would work for those things, we must work for it according to God's revealed mode of operation. And God's revealed MO is the supernatural power of his word. So brothers and sisters, take it up. Take up the sword and wield it against him. Against the evil one. And so you might reasonably respond at this point, well, how do we do that? So that's our second point. A little bit shorter, but this one might be a little bit of a long one today. I should have prepped you for that at the beginning. We'll see how this goes. I am constantly thinking, what do I need? I have passed over things as I've been going, okay? I am constantly thinking about that, but in light of what I've just said, you need the word. So I'm going to just keep giving it to you until I feel like it's time for me to be done giving it to you. And you're not going to be here till the evening service. Don't worry. Relax. The church's practice of God's word. What do we do? How do we do it? How do we take the sword and use it? Well, this is probably the point where you're expecting to hear a strong call on the importance of daily personal Bible reading, maybe scripture memory. 
And those are good things. And I would be happy to talk with you after the service if you've struggled, if you've fallen into a rut or you've never developed a habit and practice of reading the word of God daily uh, without any condemnation. I would love to just help you get established in that. Please do talk to me. Talk to another elder if you would like. That's really important. But that's not where I intend to go in thinking about how we take up the sword this morning. Because if you remember the context here in the letter to the Ephesians, right, um, Paul wasn't saying that. To the, when he said, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he was not telling them, have a daily quiet time reading the Bible in your homes. Because they didn't have the Bible in their homes. Right? The Old Testament existed, but they, people didn't have access to copies of that sitting in there. You couldn't grab a, brew a cup of coffee and sit down and open up the book of Jeremiah. You couldn't do that. And remember also that this, this word, this whole paragraph, is a word to the church. Right? That's why I titled this series, The Church's Call to War. This letter is written to the saints, plural, the saints who are in Ephesus. And the command to take the sword of the Spirit, as is the case with all of the commandments in this paragraph, they're in the second person plural. And if that's too fancy for you, second person plural, that means y'all. The commandments are y'all take the sword. Y'all put on the armor of God. Or as they say in some parts of Pennsylvania, yuns. They actually do that. It's plural. This is a call to the church together. And that's why I even titled this particular part of the sermon, the church's practice of God's word. Paul tells the church to take the sword And he himself had established that church in Ephesus on that word. Remember, he tells them in chapter 1 that they had heard the word of the truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they had believed in him. That's how God birthed the church in Ephesus. Paul was there for a period of three years. And it said he was teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He established that church on the word. And we know that after he left the church, he left the church in the, if we could put it this way, in the good hands of God's word. Because when he gathered in Acts chapter 20, when he gathered the elders at Ephesus together and exhorted them to care for the church in Ephesus, he said to them, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. This Acts 20, 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he, he, he taught them the word. He left them. He said, I'm leaving you now, but I'm leaving you with the word of his grace and it's able to build you up. And then later on, we know that to ensure that that happened, Paul left his young apprentice, Timothy in Ephesus We read about that in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. He gave Timothy instructions for how to preserve the church and care for the church and build up the church. And part of those instructions were to establish elders. And he gave specific qualifications for the elders of the church. And he said that one specific qualification of the elders of the church was that they be able to teach. And they needed to be able to teach because that was the way that they would fulfill their office of being elders to teach the word and to commend to the people the word of God's grace, which is able to build them up. And so I think we can infer in light of that calling that elders were given and the need for them to be able to teach that it was the elders of the church who were to carry on the charge that Paul gave to Timothy once Timothy was no longer able to uh Attend to this charge, either because he was dead or because he moved on somewhere else. Do you remember the charge that Paul gave to Timothy at the very end of Paul's life? What he told Timothy to do in Second Timothy chapter four. I know I just rambled a lot. Let me just give, let me just take a sip of water, and you could catch your breath. What did he tell Timothy to do? Second Timothy chapter four. I charge you, Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word, Timothy. 
That's how you're going to build the church. That's how you're going to strengthen the church. And those elders, when Timothy's not around to do it, who's going to keep on doing it? The elders who are able to teach, they're going to preach the word. It's not governments or news outlets or our own hearts and what feels wise and palatable to us or the world's wisdom or what's popular or empty philosophies of this world that dictates what we preach. We preach the word. That's what we're called to. We're called to preach the word, exposing for the people of God the contents of the Bible with a particular focus on the good news of Jesus, because he's the main point of the word. He's the main point of every word. In and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, when the church seems to be growing and when the church seems to be flagging, preach the word. Could there be any greater weight of force thrust behind the urgency and the centrality of that command than the motivation that Paul gives in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4? Right? The call is preach the word. Did you hear how he packs the whole force of heaven behind that command? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, On the basis of all of that, preach the word. Remember, Timothy, who you serve. Remember who owns that mouth, who appointed you to serve that church, who will judge you and who will judge everyone who's hearing you. Imagine that sight when the glorious king of kings and lord of lords calls ministers. This is something I got to think about calls ministers to account for how they have handled God's word. What will he judge them for? Did they preach the word? What will he judge you for? Did you heed the word? Did you expect the word in your churches? Did you put up with false teaching? He will judge you for how you hear the word. He will judge me and all gospel ministers for how he's preached the word. That's how God gives life to the church. Through the preaching of God's word. So by all means, give yourself to your daily quiet times. I mean, praise God, we do have this. We have what the Ephesians didn't have. Use it. It's life. But I think this passage confronts us with the consideration of what our attitude is towards the public proclamation of God's word. Could, could 2 Timothy 4.1 make any higher claim to stir in you a hunger for the preached word? Should it, in light of all the force of heaven behind that commandment to preach the word, should it not shape the way you think, your reverence for, your preparation for, your attitude as you prepare to hear God's word preached? I have a lot to say. I'm going to pass over some stuff. Uh, I do have, I will just mention this for a little bit more on this. I have several copies of this little book. It's called uh, Listen Up. It even has pictures in it. So it's for adults, but it has pictures. It's called Listen Up, a practical guide for listening to sermons. If you want to give some care to thinking about how you are to hear the word of God when it's preached on Sunday mornings. I have a stack of them, about a dozen or so. It's not nearly for all of you, but I mean, I could get more. But there's some back there. If that would be of help to you, just grab one on your way out. How we hear the word of God preached is a big deal in light of how powerful the word of God is in our warfare against the devil. We're to hear the word preached, but we're not to stay silent the whole time, right? The public proclamation of God's word is an an equipping time, right? In which all the members of the church are strengthened to speak God's life-giving words to one another. So the word comes forth here, but the word is meant then to Bounce around the life of the church, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul says to the Colossians, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And this is, this is one of the ways that my dear friend Joe Crispin has left an indelible impression on my life. I asked him to get up and read this morning. For those of you that don't know our background, Joe, Joe is the human instrument who led me to faith in Christ almost 22 years ago, which is scary that it was that long ago. 
But Joe, from the very first stages of my being a Christian, when I, when I, I was living in Chicago. He was his, finished up his last year at Penn State. I was in Chicago. And, and Joe would call me. And Aaron, Aaron is smiling because she knows this is probably her experience too. Um, when I would see that number was Joe Crispin on the phone, I would, I would pick it up, but I would have to go immediately searching for my journal. Because I knew it was coming, not very long after that conversation started, that the question was going to come from Joe. What's God been saying to you? That was intimidating to me. So I was always trying to find something amazing to say, you know. But I thank God for Joe because he, he helped me to develop an expectation that we should be hearing from God's word regularly and that we should be telling other people what he's been saying to us. Thank God. I thank God for you because of that. That's the way we're to be living. The point isn't just reading chapters. The point is hearing God speak to us and then telling others what he said to us. And God gives life and growth to the church that way. This, this word is preached in the pulpit, but it continues through the life of the church as that word becomes absolutely central in the lives of the members of the church and then bounces back and forth to one another the way a little metal ball does in that pinball machine. Bouncing around the life of the church with encouragement and conviction and hope and stability and endurance. So that's something you could talk about just this morning right after this service concludes. What part of God's word have you been reading this week? What's God been saying to you this week? How is it affecting you? How is it influencing you? How is it encouraging you? How is it challenging you? That's something we should expect to be just normal in the life of our church and in our relationships day after day after day. In, in, whether we're, We don't need to be gathered in the building, right? We could be at a soccer field or in the backyard or at a dinner table or at a coffee shop. But we speak God's word to one another because God's word created the church. And now the church upholds and teaches and advances his word in each other's lives and in our neighborhoods and in all the nations to the glory and praise of God. We're creatures of the word. So read the Bible by all means. Read the Bible. Value the primacy of God's word in the church, but do so not as an end in itself, but so that you can speak God's word into the lives of others and have them speak it back to you. We talk about so many things, don't we? And we could talk about a lot of things. We talk about a lot of different things, but we talk so much about masks and vaccines and politics and sports. And it's fine. There's a place for it all. But are we speaking God's word to one another? That's how God gives life. That's how God sanctifies. That's how God empowers us to wage war against the devil. I'll wrap it up. We live in a really messed up world, don't we? That's an easy way to wrap it up. We live in a really messed up world. It's frustrating. I'm not even talking about your own. I mean, there's, maybe this is true in your own personal lives. There's just pain, there's heartache, frustration, maybe anger. Well, we just look around at the culture and we see so much that's wrong. We just see so much evil. And if we have, if we have some spiritual senses, we can just see the devil's fingerprints all around. What do we do with that? What do we do about that? It may seem like not much of a solution to take up the sword. Oh, but beloved, it's a mighty weapon. We can do a lot of things, but the one thing we must do is we must stand upon and we must take up the word of God that we might slay him. What what will be what was true of Martin Luther in the days of the Protestant Reformation will be true on that final day as we think about our warfare against the devil. Now he was talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not trying to say that the Roman Catholic Church is the devil. Okay, please don't make that connection. We could talk about the 
the false teachings in the Roman Catholic Church. That would be one thing, but I'm not trying to make a hard association here. But, but when Martin Luther engaged in the Protestant Reformation and he saw the truth of the gospel preserved amidst the very serious errors of the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther said, and I think it's what we will be able to say when we think about our warfare with the devil. He said, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept, here's a little controversial part of the quote, or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, a dear friend of his, Philip Melanchthon, as I slept or drank beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. There's a lot of garbage in our world. And we see the enemy's fingerprints a lot. But as we take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we have great reason for confidence that the word will do it all. And we will see his word triumph over the devil's schemes and the devil's attacks, all to the praise of his glorious grace. So take it up, beloved. Take it up in the power of his spirit. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we pray that you would uh, give us faith in the power and the sufficiency of your word. We pray that you would help us to hide it in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. Help us as we would look at our own lives, as we would look at the world around us. Help us to not despair. Help us to take up the word, to demolish strongholds and arguments and every lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. Help us to take the sword that we might defeat the enemy and that we might live lives of holiness, lives of love, lives of joyful submission to you in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.